gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? listeners this is jonah goldberg host of the remnant podcast brought to you by the dispatch and dispatch media not since thomas jefferson podcasted alone has there been a greater assemblage of intellect on a single audio platform that you can hear over your iphone although i got to um say in advance just so you know um we had eh, somewhere between biblical apocalyptic to catastrophic technological issues that caused us to stop, pick up again, lose our place. So there may be some continuity issues. There may be some changes in audio. Um, there may be spectral apparitions that appear before you. I don't know. But just wanted to let you know in advance that we know so that you don't say what the hell happened. Um, and I, our apologies, but it, it was really all Vin's fault. I have with me two of literally among my oldest friends. Uh, they were my first buddies when I came to Washington. We've stayed close ever since, even though one of them has betrayed us to move to uh, Massachusetts, where no civilized person lives. Um, we have Tevi Troy, frequent remnant guest. He's a scholar at the Bipartisan Policy Center, author of many books, uh, holder of many positions in and out of government. And we have uh, my friend Vincent Canato, who's a professor of history at UMass Boston, uh, author most recently of American Passing, which is a history of Ellis Island, which is really a wonderful book, but um, probably more relevant for today's conversation. I don't know. We don't know where this thing's going to go. It's like a monkey running around with scissors. Um, is uh, The Ungovernable City, which was his, which I've, I've name dropped a few times on here, is um, his history of the Lindsay administration in New York City. Um, Vin, I just want to apologize to you first. Tevi and I are enjoying our Ashkenazi-derived immunity to COVID, um, but we'll be there for you if something bad should happen. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. By the way, I also uh, name drop Vin's book often, and it is the book that people are most impressed with. I know the author. People say, you know Vin Canato? I would love to meet Vin Canato. I, I, I've had similar similar experiences. And then I mentioned that I also know the author of The Bell Curve. <laughs> and the conversation goes differently. All right. So this was sort of, I mean, we talked about getting both of you guys on at the same time for a long time, but, uh, um, and we could do a whole remember when thing, but we should probably save that for another time. Tevi's idea was to do this as a sort of, let's talk about New York City, uh, the 1970s crime and how it's, influencing today and or its relevance to today and all those other sort of sort of remember when things. Um, so, Tevi, why don't you make the case for why we're here today and what we should be talking about just to sort of set the table? Yeah, I mean, we have been talking about this idea of doing a remembrance of New York in the 1970s so long that it's almost like podcast number 11. Yeah. The idea is that New York in the 1970s was close to a dysfunctional entity. Crime was rampant, graffiti was rampant, the city almost went bankrupt, um, and it was, it was a very close-run thing. You had some uh, very incompetent leadership after some promising leadership that uh, been talked about that didn't work out to be so competent. I, I talk about, um, you know, when I talk about the incompetent leadership, I'm talking about Abe Beam, who was completely out of his depth, according to Ed Koch, who succeeded him. And there is a kind of good story in that New York came back. 
right? It was in a terrible, terrible situation. We all, we all encountered it in different ways. I was living in a somewhat suburban existence. I had to take the subway into New York every day. You lived in New York, Jonah, and Vin, you were in the you know, more suburban environs, but I've studied New York as a historian. And New York came back through some good policies, some good governance, some good luck. And we look at some of the cities today that are really teetering, uh, Seattle, San Francisco, L.A. increasingly. And New York is also not what it once was. The remnant is about nothing if not how good policy can turn things around. So maybe we could talk about where New York was in the 70s, what policies came about to improve things, and then maybe how they could work again today. Vin, does that make any sense to you? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that's, that's, a pretty good, uh, that's a pretty good overview of this. And it is relevant to today, right? I mean, it's, it, one issue is, you both know this, you get editors who want you to write articles and they say, we want you to write about how today is just like the 1970s, right? You know, New York. And it's not the 1970s, right? It's, we've talked about this before. History doesn't really repeat itself. I don't even like the idea of history rhymes, but it's something's going on in New York. It's not the 70s redux, but it's, it's something going on. Uh, as Tevi said, San Francisco, Chicago, you know, Baltimore, Minneapolis, San Francisco, these places are seeing um, crime and also disorder, right? They're, these are two kind of separate issues, but they're interrelated. Um, there's the crime rates we talk about, but there's also a sense that things are not right, that there's disorder, that, uh, I mean, crime is a, is a given in cities. It's always been a, a given. You have lots of people, lots of different kinds of people, lots of so different socioeconomic um, castes in cities. You're going to have crime. You're going to have a, a certain amount of disorder. But I think what happens in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s in New York is that it goes, it goes kind of off the, off the charts a bit um, beyond what cities, uh, or New York City, other cities were, were accustomed to. We always use the, the murder rate as the kind of the benchmark. And you now murders go from about 350 a year in 1960 to about 1,700 a year in the mid 70s, and then about 2,100 by 1990. So today's increase in murders is, is minuscule as a percentage. But there's this general sense when you go to New York or other cities or DC, you guys can tell me more about DC, you know, that, that something's not quite right. Right, that there's a little bit of that. There's a sense of disorder. That's why graffiti, the, the old broken windows theory, you see lots of graffiti. There's a sense that something's awry, that that the the urban space is not being well cared for, and that that disorder can lead to other bad things. When people feel that disorder, they're also less likely to come to the city. They're more likely to move elsewhere, not to come as tourists. Uh, and I think that's where we're starting to see some of that today. People are starting to turn away from some of these cities. So it's, I remember Michael, we've talked about this. Let's just stipulate. We've all talked about this stuff before. But uh, Michael Barone, I remember he once pointed out to me, and it always stuck with me, uh, when he was talking about, I think the topic was Save It Private Ryan, but he talked about World War II movies in general, um, about how, you know, the sort of cliched World War II movie going back the last 70 years has this, you know, this unit with like one guy from Queens and one guy from the Bronx and maybe like an officer from Manhattan or whatever. And he said, you know, that was essentially demographically accurate because New York City was something like 10%, the greater New York Metro was like 10% of the U.S. population back, you know, in the 40s and 50s. And, um, 
And that's one of the reasons why it was such a, when you talked about the national crime rate, it was fine to talk about New York City because New York City was such a bump in the snake in terms of overall crime statistics that if you brought down New York City statistics, you brought down national statistics. It feels to me like that's, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe that's still in some ways statistically the, the accurate, but it feels to me that New York doesn't have that kind of substantial representation, rep, representativeness of the entire country the way it did. I mean, it's, it seems now it's just sort of a stand-in because there are a lot of media who live there and it's the city you talk about when you talk about cities, but it doesn't feel like the cultural representative of America the way it, it once did. Does that sound right? I think that makes a lot of sense, but the, the way I think about it is in the actual demographic numbers, which Barone is so expert at, it's, it's not. It's a, it's a smaller drop in a larger bucket. But if you look at New York's cultural resonance and the importance of New York as a symbol, it's still there. You know, when you and I were growing up, when all, all of us were growing up, New York was consistently the second biggest state in the nation after California. And now it's third slash fourth to Florida and will probably be fourth soon. And who knows, it might even end up being fifth. So the, the whole state and the whole city is just not as relevant from a numerical standpoint to the U.S., but I don't think we should overlook how important it is as a symbol for the country and for what cities are in general and for what cities were in the 20th century. The, the other way to look at it is, I mean, the other, the other area that I'm interested in is immigration. New York was always like the immigrant center, right? That was a defining factor of New York, right? It brought in all these different people. It was this magnet for people from other countries to come uh, and become American. And there's certainly still lots of immigrants in New York. But if you look at immigration across the country, it's a small, much smaller drop, a much smaller part of the, the pie. And people are going to Florida, they're going to Texas, they're going, I mean, they've been going to California for a while, now some are leaving. I mean, you see immigrants in North Carolina, in Iowa, in Georgia. So New York has kind of lost that special piece as well. Certainly, there's still lots of immigrants in New York. But I wouldn't say that New York encapsulates the immigrant experience any more than South Florida, Texas, Atlanta, uh, or Southern California. So I'm uh, just getting back on this 1970s thing for a second. I wrote a column about this recently, and it, it like nothing proves. So, that, you know, these polls were, were we better off 50 years ago, right? So nothing proves better that there's something else going on that people don't mean that literally um, when they say we were better off 50 years ago when you are 50 years out from 1973. Um, because 1973 was arguably, if you, if, you, if you take the full basket of variables, was one of the most craptacular years in American history, right? And, um, and the 1970s, by all the metrics, were nonsense. And so, like, why why were the 1970s the 1970s i mean what was um you know it wasn't again it wasn't just new york you had uh the a spokesman for the fbi referred to san francisco as north america's belfast um in like 1976 you had um in one 18 month period there was something like five domestic bombings a day in the united states um what was it about the 1970s that made the 1970s so awful? And why 
don't we remember that more clearly? Uh, let me let me take first crack at this one because I just rewatched as you did, Jonah, Death Wish, which was a 1974 movie, and I watched it with my son Ezra, who's a wedding you celebrated here in, in person and on the Remnant. And Ezra said to me, "Was New York really like that? Is this what really what it was like in the 70s?" And it wasn't just the crime on the subways, which obviously the the, the subways were dangerous back then, but you know they they overstated for the movies. But the general haze, right? The, mm-hmm. the air wasn't clear. That really struck me. Everything wasn't working. The, the traffic was everywhere. It just seemed like it was a city that was falling apart. Vin and I were talking in our extensive preparation for this podcast about how <laughs> the new Death Wish was done in Chicago. It's, it's a better movie, but it's not a better encapsulation of an era than the original Death Wish. Vin said, yeah, making it in Chicago now makes sense. But New York in the 70s was captured by that movie and by a whole bunch of other movies that I know Vin likes to talk about in in a way that just said, here is a city that's not working and so many aspects of it. And it's intentional in some ways in that the people who are supposed to be in charge of the public order aren't taking steps to reassert the public order. It was manifest in so many different ways. That's what makes it creptacular. My wife and I have been watching this show on Apple TV Plus called... um the crowded room. And I don't necessarily recommend it. I don't not recommend it, but I don't necessarily recommend it, but we're sort of stuck with it. We got to see it to the end, but it takes place in 1979 and it's loosely based on real events. And I really dislike the first couple episodes just because they got this thing that Tevi's talking about wrong. It looked like, I mean, they got the cars right for the most part, although they were much in much better shape than the actual cars in 1970. The models were correct, but the wear and tear was wrong. Um, but like, the, I'm not, this is not a major spoiler because it's at the very beginning of the first episode. There's a shooting outside of an OTB by Rockefeller Center um, in this thing. And they just cannot get, they, it's like they don't understand. I was trying to explain to my wife what people who hung out at the OTB looked like. Right. I mean, it was it was the urban version of deliverance and they just got it wrong. They basically just put some stenciled OTB logo on a nice storefront window by Rockefeller Center today. And, and the air was clean. And like the, if you watch those movies that Debbie's referring to and that we talked about a bunch, um, you know, taking a Pelham one, two, three French connection, dog day afternoon, just watch them in, on mute. Right. Forget whether you think the dialogue or whatever else is re- or the action is realistic. The actual setting, that's the New York, the green, dirty buses. That's what I remember of my childhood. Um, yeah, no, it's funny. So in this crowded room show, at one point, they cut to some B-roll from the 1970s, some actual footage from the 1970s. And my wife just yells, that's just B-roll. <laughs> just because you could tell immediately the difference between what New York City actually looked like versus like what they were trying to make you know, New York, like part of it is just like better cameras and better and shooting things on video versus old film. You know, there's going to give it some differences, but, and some of it was like, you know, just European cities, which had a lot of diesel, you know, like I remember in the eighties and nineties, you'd still, a lot of European cities would be kind of dirty. That's how, that's the New York city. People forget there was still, I don't know how much industrial stuff there still was in New York City by the 1970s, but the grime from earlier generations of industrial stuff was still there. And the one thing I will say, and we'll get off of the atmospherics, but when I go home to New York City and I happen to go to the subway in the summertime, that is the one unchanging 
thing about New York. It could be like the Jetsons with hover cars and um, robots and moving sidewalks. And the subways will still smell like a mix of despair, anger, and urine. And for all time, it is such a unique thing. And you can't, it's in the fibers. It's in the rats. The, the one additional smell in, in New York today is the marijuana smell. But it used to be, you would joke about Washington Square Park. That's where you'd go to smell the pot. And now it's everywhere. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity. And the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Our friend John Podoritz, he says that People are more scared today getting pushed off platforms in New York City than they were um, of crime generally in New York City when when we were all kids um, and teenagers. I don't know the actual statistics. I mean, is it? I don't know if it, if either of you do. You know, is it statistically more likely to be pushed off a platform today than it was fifty years ago? But why is it that we feel like crime is so much worse? Is, it can't just be a Fox News effect. Um, is it, our, is it, is it a sign of societal health that our tolerance for crime is so much lower that an uptick in crime feels like an epidemic compared, even though it's, it's by historical standards, not that big a deal. I mean, one thing about crime, and I think you know, you've talked about this in other episodes, the, when you talk about crime, there's, you know, crime against strangers and crime against those who, you know, where the, the, the perpetrator knows the person. So when the, there was a decline in crime in New York in the 90s and 2000s, what you saw is what crime was left was mostly, not all, but mostly was cr- murders, crime between people who knew each other. When crime becomes random, as I think it was more in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, then that's when it becomes a menace. And I think that's what you're seeing now, the, the randomness of it, the idea that you could just be walking down the street, you could be walking down Times Square as yeah, I saw the article yesterday, a guy holding a knife, walking up behind a bunch of tourists. You know, that The randomness of it is what I think fuels it. It's not the overall numbers, because overall numbers were still way below what it was in the 70s and 80s. But um, I think it's, it's that, and that's what being pushed on a subway platform. It's just the complete randomness. You can be going out about your business, and someone could just be coming up behind you and pushing you. I, I don't know the numbers, but it does seem like there's a lot more of it. I saw a chart recently from, a, I think, a reasonable, a reasonable source that showed the incarceration rate and the deinstitutionalization rate going in opposite directions. And it does feel like a big chunk of what's going on in a lot of these cities today has less to do with certainly gangs. I mean, like, I assume there's still gangs in New York, but it, we didn't, you know, we talked about like real gangs existing when I was a kid. I don't, I, 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 I don't. MS-13, I guess, is out on Long Island. According to Donald Trump, it runs the place. The, the sense, I mean, getting to sort of Vince's point about the randomness thing, that's sort of what terrorism is, right? It's like terrorism is, uh, or, or I shouldn't say, not in terms of the political science definition, but the aesthetic of terrorism is random, scary things that feel like they could happen to you. I fly planes, right? That kind of thing. Feels like, in some ways, that the, the 
the randomness and the fear factor is driven more by fear of mentally ill and drug addicted people than it used to be, Larry Hogue notwithstanding, and less by sort of organized crime stuff. Do either of you guys have any theories about like actual policy solutions to any of this or? Liberals want to regulate private space, but they don't want to regulate public space, which means that if you are a real estate developer, you will be heavily regulated by the liberal state. But if you want to act in certain unacceptable ways on the sidewalk, whether it's defecating on the street or urinating on the street or doing drugs on the street or engaging in crime, the liberal regulatory state does not come after you in the way that it used to. And I think the contrast between that and the recognition of what behaviors you can get away with, I think, leads to the addition of those behaviors. You, you see more of it if you allow it. When people ask you, when your kids ask you, when your students ask you, where did all this crime come from in the 1970s, in the 1960s and 70s, what do you tell them? Well, that's a, that's a very good question. And we don't still don't completely know. Part of it is, uh, I think it's policies as well. We had you know, less incarceration. There's the move to, like we see sir, today, to uh, kind of reduce criminal penalties. The idea that the criminal justice system was unjust or racist. So there was, uh, there was that sense. There was a sense also that there was less policing for a variety of reasons. Police took a hands-off approach. Uh, one argument, one that I like, is that uh, air conditioning in police cars uh, helped to increase crime because what it did was the police now just kind of hung out in their cruisers and, and they're, they're air conditioned. Why should they go out? Uh, it's it's a half truth, but there is a sense that policing became instead of proactive, it became reactive. So you had the police would just respond to nine one one calls and show up rather than being out on the streets, you know, walking beats, being a part of the community, kind of being pro proactive presence, which would you know, prevent crime in the first place. If you have, uh, you know, if you have police out there, and that doesn't mean, I'm not talking about stop and frisk necessarily, but just a presence uh, where people see the police and know that there's some sort of order, there's, you're less likely to get crime there. Um, and so there's change. There's also the, the corruption stuff that happened in the NAP Commission in New York, which I think also pushed police to do less. I think you're seeing that today. I think there's police are much less likely today for a variety of reasons to to engage. There's no there's little upside for them to go out and um, you know stop crime. They're they're just going to kind of for the most part in these cities kind of do the minimum or they're going to leave. We've seen lots of these urban police forces that have lost lost people, uh, lost people to the suburbs or small towns or people just retire. Well, one thing you're not talking about, Vin, is the kind of the this Ferguson effect, the sense that you're going to go, people are going to go after you if you behave uh, aggressively, if you're a police officer. So beyond, so just sort of beyond crime, um, why do you guys think the 1970s, which, I mean, like, as you guys know, like decades are not neatly between the zeros, right? It's sort of like the 1960s really doesn't get started till like 64, something like that, 65. And the 70s um, kind of, like, well, this, and then this, the, you basically say that the 60s last until 1980 in some ways. Um, but anyway, why, what, what was it about the 1970s that makes nostalgia for the 1970s as like the idea that we were better off in the 1970s seem so bizarre? About 1970, 69, 70 is, is kind of the end of the post-war affluence, the great economic boom that, you know, begins after World War II that creates, uh, helps create the great middle class. 
this era of prosperity kind of comes to an end by the late 60s, early 70s. We get a recession, small one in 69, 70, although it hits New York pretty hard. And then we get the big one in, in the mid-70s and then another one at the end of the 70s. Um, so there is the sense that that prosperity, economics, we're, we're a much choppier, choppier place. It's the year of stagflation. So you get uh, low economic growth mixed with high inflation, which really, um, you know, it's, it's something that, that wasn't supposed to happen. It's also an era where you have uh, the loss of faith in institutions, which has become a big thing today. You, this is where you start to see it in the early 70s. People now start to say they don't trust the government. They don't trust large institutions. You've got the end of the Vietnam War, the, kind of the loss of the Vietnam War. You have Watergate. You have in 75, the, the, the revelations about the CIA. All of this kind of brings down trust. You know, talking about movies, the 70s is also a great time for kind of paranoia conspiracy movies. The you know, Three Days of the Condor, Parallax View, those were great. So you have the economic stuff. You have the loss of faith. You have the, the idea that, you know, America lost a war in Vietnam. How did that happen? So the greatest military had won the war in, in, in World War II, and now it was kind of the, our, our military was in bad shape, and our status in the world was in bad shape. And it was the time when, uh, I always like to say, it's, it, it's when the 60s hit middle America. It was the 1970s. Uh, and so you put all of these things together, the changes uh, that are going on, and they all seem to hit in the 1970s. So uh, we're going to, let me just stay on you for just two seconds here. Um, you wrote uh, the, the definitive history of the Lindsay administration, and, and John Lindsay was supposed to be the golden boy of American politics. Um, and I think one of the reasons why we keep referencing movies is because John Lindsay brought all of them, you know, famously. You have this great long story, which I've told many times on here about how John Lindsay's defenders say, but he brought Hollywood back to New York and, and your responses. Yeah. Look at the movies that were made, <laughs> you know, but, but the New York that it shows isn't the one with Tony Randall and rock Hudson making martinis. And, um, uh, but as a transitional figure, what is the arc? Of, first of all, explain sort of your take on John Lindsay, but I guess, and that'll lead to Tevi's take on Ed Koch, the arc of John Lindsay's career and what it says about the changing of American politics. Yeah, he's a congressman from New York in the late 50s, early 60s from the Silk Stocking District. He's kind of a, a Camelot figure. Right? He's young, World War II vet. He's good looking. He kind of brings energy to, to politics, brings young people, excites young people to get involved in politics. There's this idea that you know, we have problems in the country, but these are problems that we can fix. It's kind of a great reform idea. Um, and that's very early to mid-1960s. He's elected in 65. And then a couple of years later, you know, you get the disillusionment. These, these problems aren't easy to fix. And in fact, not only are they not easy to fix, but they're, many of them are getting worse. And this kind of tarnishes that idea that that year of Camelot goes sour pretty quickly, not just in New York, but uh, nationally. And he becomes, instead of a symbol of kind of JFK, uh, good government, public service, he becomes a symbol of urban decay and uh, losing control over, over the city. I mean, I think John Lindsay didn't create all the problems of New York, but um, and his biggest problem was this inability to, 
to do much about them. And with this great soaring rhetoric, and he was a moralist, really. He was a great moralist. And, you know, by the late 60s, that moralism kind of turns a little rancid and becomes very accusatory. Right? And it's, it's stuff that we recognize today, you know, the, the kind of America is a racist place. The problem with the city is, you know, the people who aren't doing enough. So, you know, if only New Yorkers gave a damn. That was this uh, give a damn was his great public service thing in the late 60s. If only New Yorkers gave a damn, then we could solve poverty and, and, and all the other ills of the city. And so instead, liberalism kind of became, instead of this great shining thing that could, you know, solve the country's problems, it became uh, attached to all of these urban woes from crime to labor issues, all the, all the things that were kind of affecting New York at the time. There's an interregnum, and then there's Tevi's favorite mayor, um, um, who I don't think you could ever accuse of being America's mayor. Um, <laughs> but he was, he's, he's, the, he's the first mayor I had consciousness of in any real way, even though my family were friends with the Beams and some, I think they're kids really. But um, uh, so Tevi, pick up the story with the, with the, the rise and rise and then eventual fall of, of Ed Koch. Yeah, so Jonah, you mentioned the interregnum with Abe Beam, who was the uh, largely forgotten mayor of New York in that period. And uh, I mentioned earlier Koch's uh, thoughts about his ineffectuality. There's a story that he, Beam would sit in these New York City meetings where they would talk about what's going on in the budget. And he had this very smart guy, Harrison Golden, who's the controller, then remembers him. And at the end of each meeting, when really big things would happen, Beam would say to, to Golden, can you explain what happened there? So, I mean, he just didn't know what was going on. But then if... <laughs> If John Lindsay is kind of the pretty veneer, Ed Koch is kind of the inside behind the machinery. Ed Koch is not a pretty guy. He's got a nasal voice. He's got a heavy accent. He's from Greenwich Village. And he is just a hardworking guy. And he runs in and wins his congressional district against this very waspy guy who's almost like a, st a stand in for Lindsay, this guy named Whitney North Se Seymour Jr. And Koch tells this great story that he would stand outside the subway in the district every day shaking hands. And one day, right before the election, Whitney North Se Seymour Jr. showed up to shake hands and he sees Koch there already there. And he, in a friendly way, asks Koch, well, how long have you been doing this? And Koch says, for a year. And he said, <laughs> at that moment, he saw in Whitney North Seymour Jr.'s eyes that he knew that the man with four names was going to lose to the man with two names. <laughs> And so Koch becomes congressman, and then he wins the mayoral race in a very, very crowded, very interesting election of 1970, where you've also got Mario Cuomo is in there, and Bella Abzug, and just a whole bunch of people, Herman Benito. But Koch wins, and he decides that he's going to take New York in a new direction. First of all, there's all this talk about bankruptcy, which is a really important issue. It's not just the crime, and it's not just the graffiti, but it's the city, the city is failing fiscally. And he says, we are not going to let this happen. And so he rolls up his sleeves. He comes up with a budget plan and, and he saves New York from bankruptcy. He also, he's not, he, even though he's a Democrat, he's not beholden to liberal pieties. He calls himself a liberal with sanity. He's willing to talk about crime. He's willing to do things like um, merit hiring for judges. And he also talks up New York. He says, New York is a place to be. New York's the place where the action is. And he was also a national figure. I mean, he's not America's mayor because he's not representative of the country. But when he got into a fight with Jimmy Carter about 
Carter's policy towards Israel, that really hurt Carter. In fact, Carter says to Katya at one point, you've done more damage to me than any man in America because of Katya's constant carping against Carter. So he kind of takes on a lot of things that Lindsay talked about but didn't actually do. And I wouldn't say that the city was by any means perfect at the end of Katya's 12 years, but it was in better shape and it was on a trajectory to improve and, and the improvements, a lot of those happened. So, I mean, I, I, I feel like I'm going to have to hand in my decoder ring, but I can't really remember. I feel, though, that like you're doing a little too kind to Koch with saying that he fixed the bankruptcy crisis with, by just hunkering down on the budget. Didn't New York get like a pretty serious bailout from the federal government in some respect? Or am I just misremembering that? Well, Ford did, after much delay and much discussion, give a bailout to New York. But what Ford, the, the famous New York Daily News headline that said Ford to NY dropped drop dead, that was because Ford refused to give a bailout to New York with no conditions. And Ford said, you have to have conditions in which you are going to show some fiscal responsibility, some belt tightening. And so that was step one. Koch also did work on changing the budget and reforming things and cutting spending. So Koch does get credit for helping improve the fiscal situation of New York. And look, we're never going to love the fiscal situation of New York because they're always going to tax too much and they're always going to spend too much. But at least their their, their mouth and their appetites got more in sync after Koch. So I I don't think I'm whitewashing Koch. I I think that uh, he really did. No, no, I didn't think of that. I just thought we were just yada yadaing over an important part of the bankruptcy thing. It's, I mean, it's the state in 75, the state of New York under Hugh Carey comes in in 75 and kind of basically puts the screws to the city and kind of takes over the finances of the city. And what Koch really does, all that, all the stuff that Tebby was talking about uh, was important in, in sort of freeing the city from state control and allowing the city to get back its own control over its fiscal house. Koch provided the kind of the sanity. He provided the direction that allowed the city to get back on its feet. But yeah, and that's another thing. That the, what saved New York were actually Democrats. They were moderate Democrats. It was Koch, Hugh Carey, uh, other people, Richard Ravitch, people who know New York would know these names. These were uh, people who came in and said, well, wait a second, this we, we can't have the city continue like this. And uh, so, yes, by the 80s, things were in better shape, especially fiscally, as Tavi mentioned. So I want to get you guys to respond to this. Um, I know from John Badoritz that Nat Glazer had this line where he said, you know, one of the reasons why we've got the problems that we do is that we seem to have gone, I'm completely paraphrasing this, but we seem to have gone from focusing on the things that we know how to do um, and the problems we know how to fix to focusing on the things that we don't know how to fix, right? And I, I, it always comes to mind whenever I hear Democrats um, talk about they want to do fundamentally transformative things, right? They want to f- do these, you know, bring us into these, you know, the sunny uplands of history and fundamentally transform the economy, green this, all that kind of thing. And I always think about it because it's like, maybe if you solved, had a, you know, uh, a resolution rate for, for murder investigations below 50% or above 50%, you know, like I, or you collected the garbage better or you like, I saw somewhere that you were, that, that Chicago schools 
public schools now, it's like one in five kids, one in 10 kids can read at level. Like those are the things that we all kind of agree that city governments are supposed to do is clean drinking water, fight crime, to some extent, sort of mass transit kind of thing. And you can come up with these things, public safety, fires, that kind of thing. And it seems like there's something about the theological progressive mindset that says, no, 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 we need to focus on these root causes things that are different. And that's when progressivism and urban liberalism gets out of hand because it runs up against the things that normal taxpayers, taxpayers want cities to do. And that's one of the, the undoings of John Lindsay was the, um, the snowstorm in February, I think it was February 69, where it takes days for, especially out in Queens, the streets to be plowed. And, and the argument was, and if you can't plow the streets, how are you going to solve poverty? How are you going to do that? Yeah, I mean, this was a knack laser point. Yeah, cities have basic urban functions that need to be done and need to be done well uh, for them to survive. And you know, Picking up garbage, cleaning the streets, uh, providing good parks and recreation, providing schools that teach kids the basics. These are all the basics of, of urban governance. And, you know, once you're saying, I remember Bill, Bill de Blasio, when, he's, when he was first elected, it's like, oh, you know, he's going to end income inequality. And I asked someone, you know, How, how's he going to do that? Oh, no, it's easy. You know, you, you, you're going to have pre-K. Pre-K is going to solve. And it, it, it doesn't. Um, it might nip, nip at the edges, but it doesn't do that. Meanwhile, you're forgetting all the basic stuff that people want and need from city government. There's a really important point to be made here, which is we have a 30-year period, basically from around the late 70s to the early 2010s, where New York is not run by liberals. So Ed Koch is a Democrat, but he's liberal of sanity. Rudy Giuliani, again, in a very early incarnation, not current Giuliani, which we don't endorse, but early incarnation Giuliani is a Republican. And then you have Mike Bloomberg, who's a technocrat, right? He runs as a Republican, he runs as a Democrat. He's, he's not really a party-affiliated person. And for 30 years, they're concerned with these issues. Are the, is mass transit going to run? Are we going to stop the out-of-control strikes, which Koch faced? Are we going to make sure that the police department is doing its job? Is, this, is, the, balance, is the budget going to be balanced? They're not trying to fix problems that really aren't in their purview. They're trying to fix the things that they are assigned to do. And those 30 years especially the last 20 from the 1990s to the 2010s, are a golden period for New York. New York feels safer. I, I know when I was growing up, I never walked in Central Park. And then in that period from 19, 1990 to 2010, suddenly you feel safe to walk in Central Park again. And the city is just a better place. More people are coming in. Obviously, real estate's going up, but businesses are going there again. And it's because you have a succession of mayors who are not liberals, who are not politically correct, who are not beholden to liberal pieties, who are willing to solve the problems of the city and take them on. And then, unfortunately, then you have de Blasio come and, and things revert to back, back to what they were pretty quickly. So do you guys, I mean, just to stay on that for two, that seems a little bit like the great man theory of history applied to cities, um, right? It was like times were good under Eisenhower because Eisenhower was good. I take a backseat to nobody. I mean, we were talking earlier about the smell of pot. I think like 50% of it just came from Gracie Mansion under the de Blasio administration. But uh, New York's urban problems generally seem to be too pervasive and too um, uh, widespread around in, in, in other cities to it just be a product of 
mayoral leadership, right? I mean, like, I guess the, the question is, I, I am flummoxed. I'm honestly flummoxed. I, you know, I was out in Portland recently. I've done an episode or two about Portland. Portland is just a mess. And Seattle's not much better. And what I don't understand is why there isn't an electoral backlash against policies that normal people, I mean, when I say normal people, I'm not talking about like just white middle-class people. I'm talking about black middle-class people. I'm talking about Hispanic you know, middle-class and, 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 and working-class people. Like normal people with families want clean parks and no crime and they don't want people taking dumps in the street. And yet it is, these cities seem to be run by people who don't have a burning desire to fix those problems and by voters who don't have a burning desire to put people in charge who they think might fix those problems. What, why is that? Let me just jump in quickly because you uh, accused me of being a great man of history theorist, which I am not. <laughs> what happened is, and you allude to it, Jonah, in, in, your, in your query, which is it's not that these three men were so great that they solved all the problems and they were Hercules and Achilles all together. What happened was the voters were willing to vote for something different. The voters weren't going to go along with liberal pieties and weren't going to say we're only going to vote somebody who checks the box of every liberal wish list item. So the voters were willing to say, let's do something different because what we have is not working. Today, we're not having that to the same degree. You're certainly not having it in Seattle and Portland and San Francisco. And what you see in these cities is the nationalization of every political question. Well, you can't vote for the Republican, even if he would clean the streets and get rid of crime, because Republicans are anti-abortion. And so when you nationalize the politics of every local decision, you're going to have decisions made not based on who is going to solve the problems of the locality, but who makes you feel good, who's part of your team, and who wears your uniform. Vin, do you have an explanation for the lack of backbone by the bourgeoisie? You guys might have heard of this, but for a long time, people in New York would say, well, you know, high crime or whatever the fill in the, the urban problem. It's the price you pay for living in New York. Like that's, and that was a, for a long time, that was the argument that, that you would hear. Well, yeah, you know, there's, there's a lot of crime or, you know, trash. Picked up. But that's the price you pay for living in the greatest city. And, and I think there's a sense maybe in some of these other cities that, yeah, that's the price you pay for living in a progressive uh, progressive city. That's and what ends up happening. This is no no great shock. Uh, is that the people who would maybe vote for more moderate leadership leave? So you have behind the people who stay, who are the most ideologically prone to vote for people who are le less likely to do something about these problems um, because they you know they're they're making some larger ideological argument. So yeah, in a lot of cities, that's that's what you have. The 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 moderate middle is leaves. They just simply say, oh, you know, you can't deal with this. I'm not going to deal with it. I'm going to go. And the people who are left are much more ideologically left leaning and are going to vote for the the politicians who, in our view, uh, aren't willing to, to 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 clean up the mess. I mean, can you make the case that one of the reasons why Giuliani was possible is that you had the outer boroughs? that that phenomenon hadn't happened to yet, right? Like if you had just been in Manhattan, I, I assume Giuliani would have lost, at least in this first go around, decisively, right? And so you have these other cities which don't have like reserve armies of Staten Islands <laughs> with middle-class voters in them, you know? Well, yeah. 
And that's what you see today. Like, th- this is why Curtis Lewa pulls 27, 28% of the vote, or, you know, Joe Loda or whoever else is running, the Republicans running for mayor. You know, I had a friend, we, we had a, we had a bet. Is, is, is Curtis Lewa going to get over or under 40? And, oh, it's easily under. And, and the reason for that is the base of your voters just isn't there. You know, if, when, if you think politically, if you're running for any kind of office, you're, you're thinking, okay, you know, where's my base? Who are the people I can rely on? I can rely on this group, these neighborhoods, and then I go out from there. I build off from there. And as you said, Giuliani, you know, started Staten Island, Southern Brooklyn, you know, Northeastern Queens, uh, Eastern Bronx, maybe some of the Upper East Side, some of the business community, and he sort of was able to build a coalition. That is all, I mean, it's not all gone, but it is significantly weaker today that those people that would vote for those policies aren't there. And, you know, moderate politicians haven't figured out a way to build a coalition, a new coalition that would present some alternatives to, you know, to the progressive policies that we see. I'd say for the people who are not living in New York, who are actually still living to this podcast, perhaps you should explain Curtis Lewa to the people. Curtis Lewa, the man, the, the guardian angels, the man in the red beret, yeah, he starts this, uh, he's kind of a, a legendary figure in New York. He started the Guardian Angels, which is now in other cities. Uh, he had run for run for mayor uh, in this last go around against Adams. He was the Republican candidate for mayor, uh, kind of a conservative Republican, a, you know, an outer borough type guy and uh, was thoroughly trounced because the voter, the, the votes just aren't there for those kinds of policies. I don't think I don't think Bloomberg could get elected. Bloomberg barely won his last race. I, I, I I'm not sure he could get elected again. Also, I should say that I mean I, I think you're right about the demographics, about the coalition, about the politics. And I, I think Curtis Lewa has proven to be ultimately a fairly decent human being who's like, you know, a little weird. Um, but when I saw, I remember when I was home taking care of my mom and we had Fox on and he was interviewed and he said, look, I, lo- I, I led the no-kill animal shelter movement in this city. And me and my wife live in a, I, I, I could swear he said something like a 600-square-foot apartment with 27 rescue cats. And I was like, okay. <laughs> um, like, I'm okay with the vigilanteism and, like, the quasi-paramilitary stuff. But the 27 rescue cats in, in a closet-sized apartment in New York, that makes me a little nervous. Yeah, but let me just say, when I was taking the subway as a 95-pound 14-year-old in the 1980s, I sure was glad when I saw one of those guardian angels with their red berets get on that train. I felt a lot safer. Absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. So let him have all the cats he wants. <laughs> this is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When we were all friends back in the day in, in DC, we were part of a fairly nerdy, rarefied crowd that read the public interest where Vin had worked and um, were AI guys. And we probably had an outsized appreciation for the role of intellectual conservatism 
in American life, uh, both then and historically. I think a lot of that work is still being done. Our friend Yuval Levin does great work with national affairs. There's some really good journals out there. I think that, you know, the print magazine and National Review is still great. But it feels like this stuff matters a lot less than it ever did. And I'm wondering, as two of my go-to guys for sort of intellectual right-wing eggheadery, do you think I'm right? Do you think this is a passing phase? Do you find yourself offhandedly, absentmindedly polishing your pearl-handled revolver? And looking wistfully out the window, <laughs> um, like how do you how, how do you feel about the the current trends on the intellectual side of the right? Well, as someone who wrote a book called Intellectuals in the American Presidency, you can mock me for book plugging now. There was a big deal when you had the support of the conservative intellectuals as a Republican politician in two thousand. George W. Bush goes to Stanford University and uh, the Hoover Institution, and he meets with the top thinkers at at Hoover and. He tries to impress them because he has this reputation as not being such a smart guy. And they look around the room and it was at George Shultz's house and they say, hey, this guy's pretty good. And he got the support of the intellectual conservative establishment at that meeting. And he worked hard to cultivate it and it mattered to him. And that's one of the reasons he won that very tight nomination campaign against John McCain in 2000. And so there was a sense for a long time that you needed to win over the conservative intellectuals. Romney was constantly trying to win over the conservative intellectuals, although he had trouble with it when he, when he goes to CPAC, which again is CPAC then, not CPAC now. And he describes himself as severely conservative. Every conservative who was supporting Romney, including myself, winced because no conservative would describe themselves as severely conservative. It's not a modifier that would be used. But then in 2016, Trump actively rejects the conservative intellectuals and, and does not have any interest. And he proves that you can win the Republican nomination with most of them being opposed to you. And so since that moment, there really hasn't been the sense that you need the person who has the conservative intellectual establishment behind them to be the person who can emerge from the Republican primaries. 2024, we'll see what happens. But uh, I, I'm not optimistic about that conservative intellectual moment re reappearing. Do you remember the phrase, the, the cliche you always hear, and sometimes people still throw it out, ideas have consequences? You know, we, everyone used to throw those out. It used to be like a profound thought. And yes, obviously, we're, we're all in the ideas business. Uh, we have to believe that. But politics is partly about ideas, but it's also about a lot of other things I think we're realizing. It's about organizations, it's about interests. Uh, and I think for too long, conservatives overemphasized the ideas and were a little less, uh, you know, did not pay as much attention to the other aspects of politics. Uh, in the 90s, you could say there was a conservative intellectual establishment. I, I mean, I'd be interested in hearing both of you. You're more tied into it than, than I am. But from the outside, I, I couldn't put my finger on a conservative intellectual um, movement today that you could go to uh, as there was 30 or 40 years ago, perhaps. I don't just don't think it's there. Uh, if you look at presidential administrations, I mean, you know, even under Reagan, you know, conservatives, conservative intellectuals were, were kind of a minority, right? Certainly under George H.W. Bush, right? They're really kind of marginalized uh, there. And, you know, I, I think we, we tend to as much influence as conservative intellectuals did have on the Republican Party, thanks to people like Buckley, thanks to people like Irving and others, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, I, I think that was kind of an exception 
I don't think, I would say after the 1980s, I think we see much less of that, although there's still elements of it. But yeah, I think there's a great overemphasis on this, this uh, idea of intellectuals and ideas and politics. So I have a couple of responses to that. One is, I like the Richard Weaver ideas have consequences. I think that's right. I think George Will's right when he says small, ideologically committed minorities are tend to be the things that move the wheel of history. I think that's all correct. I am increasingly, not even just increasingly, I am become adamantly opposed to new ideas. <laughs> um, just in the sense that as a matter of math, most new ideas are bad. Right. Because good ideas are few and far between and bad ideas are much easier to come up with than good ideas. And moreover, when in our current state of populism and cultural politics, when you come up with new, when one side comes up with new ideas, the other side immediately says this is a new threat that requires new measures to deal with. Right. So like wokeism can't just be like political correctness. It must be this fundamental new virus that threatens Western life and justifies, you know, fighting fire with fire and all that kind of thing. And, um, you know, and like this idea that post-liberal integralism is a new idea is garbage. Um, the idea that industrial policy is a new idea is garbage. These are all very old ideas. But on, Tevi, on your point, I mean, I think you're right as a matter of political history, obviously, that the, as a constituency, the intellectuals mattered. I think, and this is, I'm sort of alone on this with a lot of people, but I think one of the reasons why the conservative intellectual movement, such as it is, is in the bad shape that it is, is because they got used to having proximity to power. And a lot of conservative intellectuals started to think that their job was to be a de facto messaging consultant, um, you know, for Republican politicians. And if you go and you read a lot of the smartest People that I admire a great deal, so I'm not going to name them, and, and including me until fairly recently, a lot of the political writing among conservative intellectuals was really focused on what can the Republicans do to win the next election? How should the Republicans frame this? How should the Republicans frame that? That's what got them on TV. That's what got them TV contracts. I plead guilty to all of these things. Um, and I understand that in the world of punditry, you kind of have to do that because Politics is really about what's going on with the Republican and Democratic Party and not, you know, what Pliny the Elder had to say, you know, and that kind of stuff. But the incestuous, the intellectual incestuousness, I think, has gotten conservative intellectuals in a lot of trouble. And it's one of the and you could see the trouble by the way so many people changed what they said they believed once Donald Trump got the nomination. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. I, I think it, it is an issue. I, I do think part of the problem is the question of what are the ideas that animate conservatives slash Republicans. I mean, they, I know there are two different groups, and I mean, we have this whole uh, fusionist experiment that you've talked about many times on, on The Remnant, and there's this idea that these there are certain things that animate conservatives, and those things can also be winning issues for Republicans. In the mid-2010s, there was this push towards reform conservatism or a sense of let's find new issues that resonate more because the issues that kind of animated the Reagan coalition, which included anti-communism and being tougher on crime and reducing marginal tax rates, they just don't apply or they didn't apply in a world where the Cold War was won and crime for time was down and marginal tax rates had been brought down to a pretty much the lowest realistic level. You had the sense that we needed to come up with new ideas, and Yuval and Ramesh and others were talking about coming up with those new ideas, but uh, the agenda never really coalesced, and, and 
they never figured it out. And consequently, the Republican Party also has lacked uh, animating ideas. And you talked about great man theory of history before. The Trump agenda was whatever Trump wanted at that moment. That's why there was so much infighting in the Trump White House, because you had the previous faction, which was kind of standard Republicans, and you had the Kushner faction, which is sort of New York globalist Democrat types, and you had the Bannon faction, which was MAGA-y, and they each could lay claim to the argument that they represented what Trump really wanted. Well, what Trump wanted was what Trump wanted at that moment, and there was not an intellectual coherence to it. So now we're in a position where we're trying to figure out what is the Republican Party position in 2024 at a time when the conservative movement doesn't really know what it stands for either. Yeah. I mean, I I said before that when Irving Crystal moved the public interest to DC, I mean, it was a, it was a um, rational idea because both Crystal and Buckley were trying, and this was, you know, their success to move the Republican party towards a conservative direction and get them to believe these ideas. But then as Jonah said, I think the, the line sort of shifted where instead of trying to kind of push the Republican party in a certain direction, a lot of conservatives now kind of focused in and in, in, in D.C. became kind of a mirror of the Republican Party and instead of being something apart from the Republican Party. And I mean, intellectuals, if you look at the left, that's the left doesn't operate that way. Look at all the ideas that animate the left. Look at uh, kind of climate change. Right. This didn't come from, you know, liberal left wing think tanks in D.C. pushing. This came from outside. This came from people outside writing uh, apart from the D.C. bubble. Uh, a lot of these other ideas that are, are, are bubbling around on the left uh, don't come from the think tanks in D.C. You know, Tevi's written a lot about think tanks as well. And you can, in Jonah's, you know, AI, but you can sort of see, maybe you don't agree, the sort of decline of, of, of the D.C. think tanks. I mean, they don't have the influence that they had in the past anymore. And, uh, yeah, and I, I don't know where, I mean, I'll ask you guys, where, where is the conservative intellectual movement today? If you had to put your finger on it and point to the conservative intellectual movement, who is yeah, it? I don't, I don't think it's clear what the answer is now. I think there was a time when we, we did know we had a better sense. It was sort of, uh, you know, you go to AEI and people, there was general agreement with AEI. And I mean, now AEI is much more controversial than it once was. There was a sense that heritage back in, in those days was the place you can go to to get a factual brief on what the conservative movement believes on issue after issue after issue. You could just that doesn't mean necessarily you would take their arguments or you would accept it, but this is it was a good sense of where conservatism stood. I don't think it it necessarily is that anymore. I'll tell a quick story from as you guys know, I worked in the George W. Bush White House in a senior policy role. And I talked to a friend of mine, a very smart Democrat, who worked in both the Clinton and later the Obama administrations, and he asked how you get people. And I said, well, let's say I need someone on housing. I will look and see who has written interesting stuff about housing at Manhattan or at AEI or even at Heritage. Or I would look at the think tanks to see who's writing interesting stuff or in the conservative magazines. And this guy kind of shook his head. He said, we never look at getting our people that way. We look at the activist organizations or the labor unions. And it's just a different way of thinking about it. So there was this integration of Republicans thinking they could get their conservative, their firepower from the conservative intellectual establishment. I'm just not sure it would work that way today if I were back in, in the White House. I'm not sure what my go-to place would be to get the person who's the expert on, let's say, housing policy or health policy. But, you, but Heritage was, it wasn't an intellection. It wasn't a place. It was a policy shop which is where it was this success. 
providing policy background for the Hill. That was what they were good at. That's not a conservative intellectual movement. That's a policy shop. I think those are two different things. I think like the, if you look at George Nash's book, right, this is the, the Bible for those of us who were, you know, interested in the conservative intellectual movement. Those were not policy people who on the cover, those, that, that famous cover with all those. They were writers. They were thinkers. Most of them were outside of, of D.C. And that was the conservative intellectual movement. And I think those... If you're calling Nash the Bible, is um, that the Old Testament and Continenti is now the New Testament? I'll, I'll stick with <laughs> Nash's book. Yeah, I think that's... We'll, we'll see if, if 20 years from now, people are still reading Matt's, Matt's book, then we can put it up there. But I, know, I think George's book is still um, is still worth reading today histor- from a historical perspective. So hold up. In, in Matt's defense, that's one of the reasons why Matt wrote his book the way he did is because Nash had already written Nash's book, right? I'm with you. I'm, you know, it's like the Nash book is part of my DNA at this point. But yeah, I mean, I, I will, I think your distinction between policy shop and, and intellectual movement is a useful one. I, 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 for fear of Robert Doerr listening to this episode, let me just say I will, uh, who's a huge fan of Vince, by the way, um, I will say um, I will defend vigorously, passionately, and entirely sincerely um, the work that AI does. But I think at the same time, Tevi's right that AI is not, does not have the role that it once did because, look, Heritage has become essentially a populist, a beachhead for a populist insurgency within Washington. I think the way it's being run is disastrous for the conservative movement to the extent it matters anymore for what it, what, whatever the conservative movement is. But yeah, AI... Understandably, it is the American Enterprise Institute for Public Policy Research, supposed to be more policy shop than it is sort of eggheadery, although I think we have a good deal of eggheadery. But yeah, I, I agree. There is, I mean, there's there's an archipelago, if you want to put it that way, or a remnant of conservative intellectuals. And I'm not counting myself among that class because I just don't think it's it's just a different time now. I found it fairly depressing. You know, I did not mean to end on a depressing note. So you're free to sort of tell me why I'm wrong or, or, or say something more cheerful, um, for which we always usually rely upon Tevi to, to, to come up with. Um, no one ever relies on Vin to come up with something cheerful. <laughs> well, I'll happily go cheerful a little bit because so I wrote this piece in City Journal about 10 years ago. I called it the Odd Couple Metric. It was about New York in the 70s and how we started things and how our favorite TV show, Jonah, and I was surprised you didn't mention it if you were on a desert island, what sitcom you would want. I'm not sure it would have won, but I thought you would have mentioned it. But anyway, the Odd Couple is on from 1970 to 74 or 5. And it is this funny show, Felix and Oscar, one guy's neat, one guy's messy. Uh, but it is constantly focused on crime. The, their uh, car gets uh, vandalized and they get mugged and their apartment gets burglarized and uh, Felix's wife gets mugged. And it's just constant that the crime comes up in that show. And I talk about how that is indicative, indicative of how pervasive crime was at a time. And then I contrast it with the shows of the 90s, 2000s, 2010s. You know, you, you look at Friends or Seinfeld and and being mugged wasn't a regular thing. It was. It just wasn't the same obsession that you had earlier. So I am a believer, and the reason I got into public policy initially 30, 40 years ago is that things can change, that politicians can find good ideas and pursue them and make things better. And I, you know, I've said that I'm inspired by Ed Koch. It didn't make me a Democrat. It made me someone who thought that I could get involved in politics. Then Ronald Reagan inspired me more. And 
it, it did make me uh, a Republican and a conservative. And things can get better if you have the right policies and you can explain them to the American people in a way that is compelling. And then you can carry them out when you actually get into office. So even though today is kind of a depressing time in New York, I'd, I'd certainly in New York and in the rest of the country, I'd rather live in 2023 than in 1973 without any doubt. And I think that we can make things better in the future, but we really have to put our nose to the grindstone and we've got to make it happen. We can't just bemoan it. That's all fair. I just buy gold. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys, Vin Canato, Tevi Troy, thank you for doing this. Hopefully we will have you back where we can do it in a way uh, without so many uh, technological challenges, but that would require Vin to call someone from the UMass IT department. And uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Okay, so uh, Vin and Tevi are gone. Again, apologies for what may, you know, maybe Adam fixed everything and everything worked out and you don't even know what I was talking about in terms of technological problems. But uh, on the assumption that maybe they endured, my apologies, it was a complicated situation. Um, and it explains some of the sort of jumping around that we did is because we just kept getting, you know, sidetracked by this stuff. But uh, it's always good to talk to my friends. At some point, we will do an old home week episode up where we just tell stories of, of youth and mayhem. If you're listening to this now, I am somewhere in across the pond. Um, but I'm thinking of you. And I'll be back soon. And um, so I'll, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This, this is a podcast. podcast.